thank you. Thank you for coming tonight. That one is. Welcome to uh, this month's edition of the Boethius Book Conversation. Tonight we're going to be discussing C.S. Lewis and the Abolition of Man. And our moderator, lecturer, as always, will be Dr. Fleming. While, uh, you know, when we were talking before the tape started, the, 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 uh, the question came up of the death of various people and various things that are going on uh, in the kind of the socio-political, cultural arena of people choosing their own uh, uh, gender identity. And uh, this is extremely germane to this book because this book... The title, The Abolition of Man, suggests that there is something called man, that is, that is, that there, the human species has a meaning, that, it, that to say that X is human, or X is a man, or X is male, that this means something, that it's not just arbitrary and it's not just subjective. So the issues C.S. Lewis was raising during uh, World War II, I think the, the, it was deli- the lectures were delivered in 1943 originally. I, mm-hmm. I don't think it was published here till, till uh, four years later, but uh, the, those issues are the issues front and center in the, in the American culture war today, and in fact they always have been. This has always been. The human nature... What it is, is it real, and, and what, can it determine uh, human life? That has been the, 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 the issue that is uh, staring us in the face throughout all, all our, all, my entire lifetime and certainly before. I was born uh, two years after this book uh, came out. Let's... Uh, I want this to be more of a discussion than a lecture. Let, let's start with the the uh, the question he raises in the first chapter, and the question he raises by by looking at t- textbooks is whether or not distinctions in language, like the different the Coleridge's difference between pretty and whatever it was, sublime. sublime, whether such distinctions are merely subjective, in other words, it's the way you feel about things, you know, and, but it's, you know, you, you say potato, I say potato, you, uh, let, uh, is that what it is, or, or is it, does, does it reflect something essential in what's being discussed, and, and then what is if we decide where we stand on that, what are the consequences of taking each position? Now, one of the, one of the things which Lewis, a problem he dances around, it's a philosophical problem, and that is it's the problem of predication. That is, if you say, um, this dress is white, or uh, John is running down the block, but the John and the dress are the subject, and then it's connected with 
with the second half of the sentence, which is a predicate, which could be an it could be an action, an action with an object of the action, or most simply, it can be just an adjective like white, dark, noble, beautiful, sublime, pretty. And so the question is, when we say something is beautiful, are we saying something about ourselves, or are we saying something about uh, the the object that that is really coming into its essential nature, which which then raises the question to is is there is there well, the deeper question, which is are there essential natures to anything? This is the question raised by uh, first by Parmenides, and then Plato, Plato took it up and turned it into a huge uh, long argument. Aristotle. Add in a certain amount of nuancing, but it's the problem of what in the Middle Ages they'll call the problem universals. Are there such things as universals? Are they mere concepts? Are they merely what was it called, a flatos vocis, a, a, a breath of the voice? Uh, or, uh, or are these universals imminent in everything in the world? In other words, there's a quality of whiteness in all things that are white, or is there is there a separate world of of, of, of pure beings where you you pure predicates where you would have whiteness, nobility, humanity, whatever? I, I I don't want to get into the fine points of this because there is really a, a dividing line between on the the Platonic Aristotelian tradition in which they're having you know they're having a friendly quarrel about nuances. And the modern tradition, which says they're, 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 that these things are simply words or, or concepts or feelings that apply to anything, that, 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 have, no, that have no objective meaning. So it's just starting with that, I mean, when you, when you go through life, for example, I listen to the people on National Public Radio and they're quoting... Barack Obama describing Prince as a great musician. Well, uh, as, as my, my view, and I'm not a professional musician, but my view is that he's uh, just a, just a, a trumped-up R&B artist with no particular talent or ability. Now, is this is this a question? Is this one of those questions where everybody has a right to an opinion? Or is this a question oh, no. about which we can say there's objective reality, about which we can have objective, uh, we can have critical judgment? I mean, if I say, there are people who if I say, uh, I can't stand whoever it is. It used to be Madonna, or now it's <laughs> say Lady Gaga. <laughs> and they say, well, just because you happen to, you happen to prefer Mozart and Haydn to Lady Gaga, that's a subjective judgment. And, and uh, I had a friend, some of you know Mark Atkins. I hope he listens to this. And we were traveling on a plane, and I heard him with headphones on. And I said, what in the hell are you <laughs> listening to? And he said, it's disco. I like disco music. And I said, are you joking? Are you 12 years old? <laughs> and he said, he said but I, I like what I like. You know, and, uh, and I said, don't I have a right to like what I like? And I said, that's what Jack the Ripper's mother said. <laughs> that little Jackie liked cutting up animals with a scalpel, and later on he graduated to women. 
Now, so, well, you you can't say that it's the same thing. If you don't you don't like disco, that's one. That's fine. That's your business. But you can't say that that having tasting music is the same as having uh, making moral distinctions. I say, I'm not talking about the same thing. But so you're saying that music that is degrading to the human soul and to the human spirit can be, is it's up to you to decide whether you like it or not. This is just a subjective judgment. I think one way to approach it is by, as you mentioned, analyze the consequences yeah. and to observe that the subjective, entirely subjective approach to these ideas leads to absurd, leads to, uh, leads to nowhere. While it may be true that the gustibus non disputandum, that we, you know, everyone has its own preferences, and maybe your friend's predilection for disco is, you know, in, in his own view, completely justified. Yet we cannot, you, we cannot apply the, that rule to, uh, to uh, be beyond, beyond preferences. Because then we arrive very quickly to the point where we, we can see now where, where we, uh, anybody will declare, you know, the, this guy, uh, 56 all, 6 two uh, Canadian uh, lumberjack claims to be 12-year-old girl, yeah. right? But it could be very well applied to any type of, of uh, statement, any type of, uh, of uh, uh, observation about reality. So clearly, even if we cannot pinpoint where the error is, we can clearly say that it's an inadmissible idea to be applied to our to our, uh, it, it, it's, 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 it's a wrong way to approach epistemology. Yeah. And we could just say that there appears like there's something wrong. I've got some common sense here. This doesn't seem to make sense. So what I'm saying is that it's as though you're not having any common sense. Most people would be able to say, uh, okay, we're talking subjectively or objectively, but sometimes something just jars you as it being, this isn't right, it doesn't sound right, it doesn't seem right, and is it right that I should say that it doesn't sound right or doesn't seem right? Yeah. Well, of course, then we get to the political correct people who say, no, no, you cannot criticize anybody else's whatever. In fact, don't even think about it because it's not worthwhile doing that for all they have their own. Oh, but of course they don't believe that. Of course not. They don't believe it because they, they can criticize you, but you can't criticize them. Mm -hmm. I mean, and Lewis brings up this point. He says they these people who say that that uh, there's no objective basis for making a decision, and yet they themselves have decided that everything until last year <laughs> is uh, is out of date and worthless and degrading and humiliating. So they <clears throat> it's. It's not that they are, are non-judgmental. On the contrary, they're the most judgmental people in the world. But they are defending a, an entrenched worldview in which, by the way, there is profit. There's profit. There's no profit in being politically incorrect. There's plenty of profit in being politically correct. So all of the, all of the pressure. When, Michael, you say, when you say uh, common sense, Common sense, uh, he doesn't much use this but, uh, phrase, 
But uh, common sense, of course, is what Lewis is talking about when he says, well, you can call it the natural law, you can call it tradition, you can call, you can use the Chinese term and call it the Tao, but, but there is a body of understanding that, you know, everybody knows, you know, everybody knows you're supposed to respect your parents, everybody knows you're supposed to take care of your children. And it shouldn't be up to each individual human being to decide whether he agrees with that. Because if you have to decide, you know, if you, you for example, you, you, you grow up in a, in a normal Christian home and then you're sent to public school and they say, don't listen to anything your parents told you, don't listen to what the priest tells you, don't listen to all that baloney about tradition, this is a new world, they, they are... They are uh, they are disaffected. They're not in tune with the, the world as it's developing. So the poor child then has to choose. He has to choose to whom he is loyal. And, and of course, he's, he's, got, he's got a school full of teachers who, you know, carry the big stick. And he's got the, the children around him who are being molded. So common sense, unfortunately, only works in a society where the majority have that as a, as a concept. It only works in a society where we all accept what common sense is. Mm -hmm. yeah. But wouldn't it be the most uh, expedient way to explain to uh, lay people, people really not into philosophy, uh, in simple terms, that this is a bad idea by by illustrating that it leads to to uh, absurd. It can work, but you know what is absurd. For example, Ra rather rather than than using the, the common sense term, yeah, which yeah. is somewhat fluid, yeah. right? But this, you get the same problem with what you're bringing up. Imagine, I remember. Um, I, I considered myself fairly progressive and left-wing in the 1960s, and so I went to graduate school, and I met these, uh, this is, we're talking about 1968, roughly, and I meet these young feminists, and I said, don't be ridiculous. You know, this is just an absurd. What's next? The rights of children? And if you have children's rights, what's next? The rights of homosexuals? Animals. Well, what's see, next? and then, see, everybody, and most people, most people in our graduate program were laughing with me, not at me. Ten years later, they'd be laughing at me because the sense of what was absurd or what was normal or what was common sense or what was even evil had changed because, and so the problem here the problem we're facing, which even Lewis didn't have to face, because Lewis was looking at normal people being corrupted by the, by the educational establishment, but there was still a sense of what was normal in the world. You could walk up and down the streets of a little English town, and they, they knew perfectly well. Not only is that not true anymore, but the sense of what is not permitted has gone, has gone at light years beyond. So that today we actually have to sit around and say, well, the debate is whether or not a man, as somebody born male, can be a woman and illegally and use women's restrooms. And the, the only question now is whether or not he is submitted to the full treatment. 
Here in Illinois, there is a bill going through the legislature to say that you can have you can put yourself uh, as a woman if you're a, ma a male, even if you haven't had hormonal treatments and mm. operations, you could say, "I have decided I'm a woman. I just don't have the money yet for the full treatment." So there's the argument. The argument is not not between us and them. The argument is between them. Do you just have to say it, or do you have to have a medical treatment that will change your gender identity? Um, the imperial self. <laughs> so it's gone, and, and you know, ten years ago, five, ten years ago, this question was absurd. Yes. You know, you know, would have left. But see, I remember uh, all my friends who thought, you know, the Reagan Revolution. It was morning again in America. I remember this when Ronald Reagan was was elected in 1980. Even leftists of the Democratic Party did not believe that homosexuals had particular rights mm -hmm. as opposed to the rest of us. By the time Reagan and Bush were through, the whole Republican Party agreed that, 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 that it was an official position that homosexuals were possessed of specific rights and that they had been discriminated against uh, for, uh, for, uh, throughout human history. So six, so uh, excuse me, twelve years of of the Reagan and Bush administration, and that's what the conservative movement—that's the best thing they could give us. Yeah. And they say they slowed the revolution. They did not. It accelerated in those years. Lewis Carroll said the same thing a long time ago in Alice in Wonderland. It means what I say it means. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 We seem to be going <clears throat> to what that infamous. Occultist Aleister Crowley said, "Do what do what thy will shall be the whole of the law." Yes, yes. It seems like it's just causing chaos in this country. But you see, but if you talk to if if you talk to say a moderate conservative Christians, they will say, "Well, that sounds a lot like Rabelais, you know, Fesque voudra, do as you will." Isn't that the motto of the Abbe de Telem in, in, uh, in uh, Gargantua and all of that? And they will say, well, you know, Montesquieu, Montaigne, Rabelais, they all are, you know, in a moderate way. You're not going to argue against that, are you? And see, and, 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 and this is the problem. And even Lewis sometimes suffers from this problem. The revolution started, you know, four, five, six centuries ago. <clears throat> And it picks up, it's constantly picking up steam, constantly accelerated, but you can't take a moderate position. You're, on, you're either with the revolution or you're against it. And what you have the so-called conservatives, and this is true of Catholic conservatives, it's true of atheist conservatives, what you have the conservatives say, okay, the status quo 1972 is fine, or 82, or 92, but we don't want to go further than that. And they will not look at the fundamental <clears throat> argument, which is, which is on the table and staring us in the face. Yes. And that, of course, it, he raises here. And it really is an epistemological, metaphysical argument. Mm -hmm. our, our, can, when we describe something, is that, now obviously many of us do describe things that are just purely subjective, that mean all they mean is, I like it, or I don't like it, or yuck. <laughs> but there's, there's a you know there's a lot of that. But the question is, is it possible? Is it possible to say that A is B, and does that mean something? So when we say that, for example, John Smith is a male human being, does that have any meaning other than 
what we think about it or how we feel about it or, or how John Smith feels about it. And so Lewis, Lewis put it on the table. Are these concepts or are they, are, they, are they in reality or are they simply names that we agree to apply? But he says here, are they realistic, rational, or basic? And you wonder, well, you have to, in order to address that, it seems like everybody has to come to a common baseline so they all know what the vocabulary means. And if they don't agree on the meaning of this particular word or that one, you're lost. And you're arguing against somebody who can't even argue with you or even discuss it's it. Because their meaning is so different. Voluntary. There, there was a very good illustration on... Dreyer, whom you don't like, uh, blog uh, just last week or this week, uh, where he's got a video of a uh, on the college campus of a uh, of a guy five five eight I think uh, five eight guy maybe Caucasian yeah maybe thirty something and he approaches a group of students and he presents himself as a as six six foot two Chinese girl. Everybody is everybody is afraid to to confront him. The Emperor has a clothes? Yes. Right. But you see, here's the problem with this. And it's the problem with Mr. Dreyer, it's the problem with everybody at National Review and the American Conservative and all those places. You know, he he, his views are basically, you know, 1970s, 1980s, fixed in time. But believe me, he moves forward because he has no settled principles. And if you don't have a, if you don't have a clear mind and settled principles, what, what you are is two steps behind the current state of the revolution. No, I just use it to yeah. illustrate how far yeah, we've yeah, gone. Yeah, okay, yeah. it was not about Dreyer. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. Right. But 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 we'll, the, the the day will come and it'll come very soon, like within six months. Well, we'll say, boy, think of the time when it was only a six yeah. foot two uh, lumberjack pretending to be a Chinese woman. <laughs> we, because why not pretend to be an animal, or yes. why not pretend your animal is human? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Let me read you this little passage uh, where he talks about. Uh, he says. Um, He's, he's, he's gonna, he says, well, he's, this conception of what is, what is objectively true, what is objective reality, he's going to call it, call it simply the Tao. That is the, uh, not the Tao Jones, but the, <laughs> which, which is, the, which is the, the only principle you'll find in National Review. <laughs> it is the doctrine of objective value, the belief that certain attitudes are really true and others really false to the kind of thing the universe is and the kind of thing we are. Those who know the Tao can hold that to call children delightful or old men venerable is not simply to record a psychological fact about our own parental or filial emotions at the moment, but to recognize a quality which demands a certain response from us, whether we make it or not. And he says he himself doesn't like children, but he understands that's a defect in his character. <laughs> And, you know, Lewis doesn't like music either. And he couldn't stand music in church, and he blamed it on the fact that the English can't sing. <laughs> but he, because he recognizes objective reality, you know, like, I've known people, uh, Mark Kennedy was saying, you know, he never, the other day, and it took him years to, to like Haydn. Well, if you acknowledge objective reality, eventually you're going to listen to Haydn enough that you'll realize, gee, I'm wrong, 
and they're right, yes. you know. And uh, if, if so, now it's something that there's a difference between something that's been universally recognized for a long time and something that's merely fashionable. The fact that, you know, <laughs> we're, not gonna, we're not gonna wake up one day and say, you know, all those people who loved Prince were right, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and we were wrong. <laughs> Isn't it uh, somewhat necessary? I mean, it should be a necessity to be able to say, in my case, it was Brahms. It took me many years to yes. appreciate Brahms. Yeah. And uh, the idea is one should know, would simply know that it, uh, that it is a defect in yeah. oneself. There are, of course, there are differences in taste. And for example, when I was 14 years old, Brahms was my favorite composer. That doesn't mean that I was smarter about music than you were. It, you know, I was just a sucker for Brahms. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I grew up listening to a lot of Haydn, so, so I was a sucker for Haydn. And so these things develop. And frankly, there are immortal, there are composers that everybody is supposed to love, like Chopin, that I, I, the older I get, the more indifferent I am to them. I don't like people tugging at my heartstrings. My heartstrings are getting a little rusty anyway. <laughs> so, now this, this uh, one, of course, one of the, the, the really, the, the, the most fun, we're talking about predicates, about whether, you know, venerable, and delightful, wise, foolish. The, the, the most important predicate on the table is, as I suggested earlier, man. If you look at, uh, and if you look at the great ideologies that have developed, say, since the French Revolution, since 1800, between 1800 and, two, and 2000, the, the most of these great ideologies didn't uh, base, and in fact, going, going before that, we can go back to John Locke, most of these great ideologies, part of the center of them is there's no such thing as a fixed universal human nature. This is by definition. So, for example, uh, Karl Marx, in, in some of his early writings, says, man is the species uh, that makes its own nature, its own essence. Well, he was wrong. Yes. Well, but, so, that, so, at the heart of Marxism, and by the way, I, I used to have arguments with Eugene Genovese and his wife, who were hardcore, card-carrying communists for a long time, and they would deny that this was the heart of Marxism, because because they were also, in Gene's case, raised as a Sicilian Catholic, and he, he this, this was creating cognitive dissonance in him. <laughs> but, um, so, or, uh, the heart of uh, Boazian anthropology, the whole anthropological project, right, the whole project of social sciences, is that human nature is variable from culture to culture. We should go and study savages in the South Pacific because if we do, like Margaret Mead, we'll find that girls of 12 are having promiscuous sex, that it doesn't mean anything. You, or we could find tribes like the, uh, the Gentle Tassidae, a tribe in the Philippines where they had no sexual jealousy, they owned no property, they had no conflict over power. And of course, the fact that it was uh, invented by a nephew yeah. of, uh, of uh, Ferdinand Marcos as a tourist stunt, yes. and, and all these dumb anthropologists are coming and writing books on it. I remember I had a student at my, when I was teaching at Miami of Ohio, 
Well, you say, because I was already making these arguments, you say that human nature is fixed, that by what we studied, the Romans were studying ourselves. Well, what would you say about the gentle Tacitus? They were written up in the Time magazine this week. Charles Lindbergh praised them. So, so, uh, so I said, uh, I said, I just don't believe it. I said, uh, I can guarantee you it's, a, it's either stupidity or a fraud or both. Well, it turned out to be both. It was fraud from the Marcos <laughs> government and stupidity on the, in, the, in the anthropologist. It's like Kinsey, right? Yeah. yeah. Kinsey is a... Yeah. So the, the only... I, in my first book, The Politics of Human Nature, I actually tried to think, what's a modern ideology that isn't rooted in denial of human nature? And the best I could come up with is Freud. Because <clears throat> Freud, as wacky as he is, and I have no good, not a good thing to say about him other than that he's a clever literary essayist. Clever, but not wise. But that Freud believed that these crazy things he talks about, the id and the ego and the superego and the Oedipus complex and the, the, the original sin, he believed he said, this is all human reality. Now, he believed it was rooted in his historical act that, you know, the, the first sons killed the first father so that they could have relations with the first mother. But, no, but setting that aside, Freud, unlike, say, uh, the behavioral psychologists who believed that you could, you could re-engineer human life. So what, what Lewis is putting on the table here, basically, is a categorical rejection of all modern ideology. And remember, go, let's, let's go back to John Locke, who he does quote with approval, unfortunately, because, I mean, Lewis is, hadn't cleansed his mind purely. Be, being a rational Englishman, he still wants to think kindly thoughts about, about Locke. Uh, and Locke said that the human mind was a blank slate on which experience could write. Now, if you believe that, you can believe anything. You could, from the blank slate to a Stalinist five-year plan is only this distant. Because if, 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 if the mind is not programmed through, through certain, you know, like Aristotelian categories, that to, to perceive reality in a certain way, and because it's structured, because the mind and reality sort of reflect each other, if that's not true, then why not? Well, if, if, the mind, if, if the mind is really a blank slate, then why, why can't John's mind become Sally's mind? Or Rover's mind, for that Right. I, until I had my second child, I firmly believed in tabula rasa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Really? <laughs> but, but isn't that the whole argument today of the left, that, that man is ultimate... Uh, ultimately malleable, that yeah. we can make man mm -hmm. into whatever we wish, yeah. and they deny the, our fallen nature, they deny that human nature doesn't have a history, it is a fallen nature, it will always be that. Wasn't that the original argument with Lucifer? Yes, um, it is. Uh, I think I, a point on that is that they deny that we're made in God's image. Yes, yeah. because they, they hate and despise God. Of course. They, they deny what made God's image. They deny, of course, that, that also that God became, took on the image, the, the, uh, through the incarnation, took on the image of man. But, you know, they, they, they deny that there's anything essential in man. So it's interesting that uh, one of uh, Lewis, his nemesis is, of course, Darwinism. 
But Darwinism is the number one, properly understood, is the number one scientific ideological movement that says, no, no, <clears throat> after evolving for 10 million years, we're pretty much the way we are. You can't change this in one generation or 10 generations or 100 generations. The, the, the whole, we're carrying the burden. I, figure, I, figure, I did this calculation recently. I took, I took out an old Texas instrument calculator. And I said, well, how many generations have there been since the emergence of Homo sapiens? And, okay, our current generation is point zero 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 like one out of out of out of that gener out of that. Well what about what about Australopithecus, you know, Africanus? What about and we get down my calculator ran out of zeros. <laughs> so and if you want to take us back to the e e uh, emergence of the mammals you could, you know, you probably your your uh, my my uh, my Apple computer would run out of zeros. <laughs> so you take this 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 you take the run these evolutionary numbers, and the answer is Dar Darwin and Aristotle converge on the same point. That is that human nature is what it is, and it is the object of rational inquiry to find out what that is. Now, Lewis had, a, had many very good reasons for hating the Darwinists because they, they're all ending up like, you know, like uh, Richard Dawkins. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In his own time, who was the guy, uh, who was the great um, J.B.S. Haldane? Okay. And Haldane it was this uh, fa very famous scientist, a, a brilliant and witty man. He, uh, it is said that he is the physicist Weston in the science fiction novel uh, in, the, in Paralandra and out of a silent planet. But, uh, of course, Haldane was once asked, well, uh, Professor Haldane, you, you've spent your life studying the created universe. What can you say about the, the nature of God from looking at what he created? And, of course, Haldane is internally groaning. And he said, thought about it, and he said, uh, terribly fond of beetles. <laughs> so, uh, but so uh, I, this, I don't get annoyed with uh, with Lewis for uh, for his anti-Darwinism because because that was an uh, because that was you know he was living in the age of Julian Huxley, you know people who were were it was a, it was a propaganda vehicle. It's a little bit different today when. Uh, there are a lot of uh, there are, are are many uh, there are many Christian Darwinists and uh, it's it's there and there's a convergence. There are many uh, serious Catholics who are beginning to see that that uh, Darwinism, when not treated as an ideology, but when treated simply as you know evolutionary biology is the study of the of how the human species has adapted itself. That when they, when when taken in that context, it's an extremely reactionary way of looking at human life. Mm -hmm. But uh, so you have, so it, it is amusing that on the one hand, you have the, the um, science, the, one, the, the, the cutting edge science uh, that studies human nature, and you have, let us just say, traditional Christian and Catholic theology. And uh, it, when asked questions like, uh, what do human beings think they want? You know, they'll come up with the same answer. When, when, you, 
that when you study the, the, the nature of man, the nature of fallen man, they, they, have, they have virtually the same things to say. But unfortunately, uh, Darwinism has been co-opted by modernism. And so, and, and, and it's used as an instrument for destroying uh, human civilization. What the left doesn't understand is there's always a tug and a pull and a bias back to barbarism. Yeah. No rules, no civilization. And, and that's, that's where they wish to take us back to. I think we should take a brief break and uh, people can refresh their wine. It um, is. Uh, John, would you can I, I, I should have brought this up earlier. But you know, in the Northwest Quarterly, this lodge, uh, Timberlake Lodge, is advertised for a long night. No. All right. Uh, it's time to um, uh, move on. And one, one transitional argument that is uh, valuable to make is how do, how do if, 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 if mere fashion or subjectivity can't, uh, can't get you to a truth which is wholesome and practical, then what, 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 what are our remedies? You can't ask people to become students of philosophy. And this is one of the problems I have with some of my uh, Calvinist friends. No offense to Mark Kennedy. Because they'll say, they'll say, you're going to hell because you don't understand Calvin's theory of election. And I'll say, well, you know, people are go to hell because they're stupid? Now, of course, Calvin also said this was predestined for the beginning of time. But the, 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 you can't have a uh, you can't have a wholesome view of human reality to think that only people with an IQ of 150 who are doing graduate work in philosophy can lead can have can lead a wholesome life and hope for salvation in the future. So uh, most societies you go by custom and tradition, and uh, some of those traditions are not always very good, like forcing uh, the widows of a Hindu prince to throw themselves on the fire. There are, you know, maybe there are better, better customs than that. Um, I, I remember when we, were, when we were going to the uh, RCIA and the, uh, the, the, the poor fellow, is a, he was a small college math teacher, and he kept on saying, all religions teach the same thing. And I said, well... So you believe it's sati, you know, that, that's okay. Well, I don't know much about Hinduism. Well, what about, what about the way the Muslims treat their four wives? Well, I don't know much about Islam. So I'll throw about four examples. And I said, if you don't know anything about any religion in the history of the world, then how can you say that they're all the same? So, but Oops. now, Lewis, what is, what is Lewis's answer? I mean, quite a, you're supposed to accept the tradition of the way things are, the, the, the natural law, the Tao, but how do we how do we experience this? How do how do we know it? We don't know it in our head because we're not smart enough, most of us. So how do we do know it? Proper education. Proper education. And what does that educate? Does it educate the mind? Partly. In the heart. It educates the heart exactly. It educates the and so his discussion of men without chests. It's not that they are men without courage necessarily. But it's men who have an underdeveloped uh, 
set of the, the normal human passions, the feelings that you are programmed by nature and by God mm. to have, when you see a woman in distress, uh, a, a decent human being wants to help her, a suffering child, you know, when you see, you understand nobility of character, you understand the need perhaps to sacrifice your life for that of your family and community. All of these things, yes, society shapes these, and cultural traditions shape them, but they're, but they're learned, they're not learned all up here, they're learned in here. Now let me read a, a, a tiny bit, and he says, um, and he said, that's why you can't, he quotes Confucius saying that those who have a different Tao you can't talk to. If they have a different set of assumptions completely, there's no point, meaning they, they are, they're completely off base. And then, of course, he quotes Aristotle with one, one of Aristotle's most uh, profound uh, things in, in his ethics. He says that people who have not been properly brought up by their friends and family should not study ethics. Because all they will learn is how to confirm their bad habits and justify them. And, of course, you know, Plato says uh, later on in the laws, you shouldn't, you shouldn't talk about these things till you're in your 40s or 50s because you, you don't have a level enough head. But uh, so it is, and this is something, you know, Lewis is not the first person to say this, and it's not just Lewis quoting Aristotle and St. Thomas. You have a whole tradition of thought <coughs> in uh, 17th and 18th century Scotland, the whole Scottish common sense tradition. By common sense, they don't mean uh, he's got practical wisdom, which is an important co uh, component of this, but rather the sensus communis, the, those passions and feelings we share as human beings, and that it's those feelings that, that, uh, that guide the development of, of our character. So that, that's an important alternate tradition, because just as uh, Descartes and Locke and all of those people are destroying our, our sense of what it is to be human, some of these, some of these clever Scots, you know, David Hume, Thomas Reed, some of the others, as, as bad as they may be on certain metaphysical points, they are still trying to say, Francis Hutchison, they're still trying to say that through, our, through normal human feelings, we can have an access to what others would call the natural law. Um, so, an, and he says, an, an open mind in questions that are not ultimate is useful. An open mind about the merits of Brahms or Haydn or even Prince is useful. <laughs> Quote, but an open mind about the ultimate foundations, either of theoretical or practical reason, is idiocy. That is, you're condemned to be an idiot if you, if you have an, an, uh, uh, an apparently open mind. And of course, it's, it's never open, as he points out. It's always uh, a question of having closed your mind to human experience, human wisdom, human tradition, and only accepting the propaganda that's being force-fed into you by, through these textbooks and, uh, and these schools. Any comment on this? He, make, he makes a good, a good point in the book that um, if everything is subjective, uh, nothing is true, 
they undercut the ground of their own assertion. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 How do they know that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, they've got, no, they've got no basis for saying that. Well, why should I take it seriously? Or why should I follow their... He also, Lewis makes the argument that, you know, ultimately... If you take if you take the, the these foundation this natural law foundation away from man, and practic the practical reasoning, the practical wisdom that makes sense of it, if you take that away, take it off the table that no longer exists. Well, what's left? Well, what's left is the natural passions, the instinct, and yes, you're somehow some people will tell you you should follow a higher instinct, but ultimately it means let my will be law. You know, what I want, I order. And what I, and he quotes the, 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 the Latin proverb. So that what, what you're left with is, is complete naked violence. I used to argue this with libertarians. And they would say, well, you know, uh, you shouldn't, you should be allowed to do anything with your property you want to. And uh, if I want to sell pornography, it's nobody's business as long as nobody's been harmed in the production. And I said, well, okay, so anybody can do what he wants to with his own property. I said, if I buy a gun, can I shoot you on the street? Because it's my gun. And I, I happen to object to your... Well, well, that's a violation of the principle of non-aggression made sacred by, the, by Murray Rothbard. I said, yeah, but Rothbard's my friend, but I'm, I don't worship him. Let's just say I've grown, I've, I've grown beyond that. I've been reading Nietzsche lately, and he makes a lot of sense to me. And so if you get in my way, I will kill you. And in fact, in fact, I will kill you and grind you up and feed you to my dog. Tell me why that's wrong. Right. Yeah. Well, so perhaps the uh, one way to... The, the question is, beyond understanding the un philosophical underpinnings of, the, of these wrong ideas that we're discussing, can we, can we think, can we... Uh... Someone has a gun. This is exciting. Okay, sorry. I missed, I missed serving a guest. Can, 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 we, can we even uh, try to, to formulate a way to uh, convince these people about the, the, uh, how wrong these ideas are? And one way perhaps is to, to use the Weaver's uh, principle of uh, the ideas having consequences. So we, we, because invariably those, these people will appeal to some, some, however wrongly uh, um, formulated idea of, of goodness that, 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 you know, we, we believe that because it, it, these are good ideas, right? Yeah. They, and we could demonstrate that the ultimate consequences will be absolutely devastating, it will be disastrous. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, is there anything else we can do beyond that? Well, let, let's take up this. There, 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 there are there are practical reasons for doing what you're saying. It, 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 has, it has certain limits because, as we know, uh, things that were horrifying in 1750 were normal by you know 1850, and things 
The Marquis de Sade is now considered a no, uh, a, a path-breaking intellectual, a little bit behind the times that today, because believe me, you know, because you know, look, look, the, what what the the best-selling book of the past ten years, the Fifty Shades of Grey, which which is a Sadian novel, you know, I, I haven't read it, but I know the outline, you know, and uh, so there 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 are some limits. What I think, you know, there's a Socratic method. Or used by Plato, and that is you first, and you, you can you can really dumb down the method. First, you decide what find out what it is that people really really believe. So, for example, if they're parents, you argue you can talk with them sincerely about their children and what do you want for your children. And would it be? And they, they'll, they'll agree with you that it would be wrong to abuse those children, it would be wrong to starve them, to beat them, to rape them. What's important is these children to grow up happy. And it's a, once, you, once you get them to admit all that, and in other words, and their objective standards of happiness, for example, somebody who commits suicide at the age of 25, we could say that's not been a successful life. All right. So you can then take, but you have to get them to agree to something first. Because if they don't agree, you don't know where you are. Different yeah. though. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so then, then once they agree that high suicide rates in a, in, a, in a small population would be a bad thing, well, how do you explain the incredible suicide rate amongst transgenders? If it's a good thing. And of course, their answer will be, Society. It's society. society. And you should say, well, okay, maybe you're right. Let's say that's possible. But would that, if, if let's suppose that that's not going to change anytime soon, wouldn't you want to protect your child in the sh from walking down a road that leads to despair and death very quickly? I mean, and, and by the way, is it societal attitudes toward heroin addiction that mean heroin addicts die at a comparatively young age, or, or methamphetamine addicts die at a young age? Is that, is that societal pressure, or is it cause and effect? Or high death rates in, um, in homosexuals. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, then don't talk to a dentist, because dentists also have the, like the highest professional death rate. Yeah. I'm, I'm, we're having, sitting in Da Mario, in Florence with Beasley, and there's an there's a yeah. Italian dentist yeah. is sitting next to me at that because it, oh, it's open seating at Damanio. <coughs> and so Mark says, Ask him because the dentist either speaks no English or, for his own convenience, is pretending to speak no English. <laughs> so he says, Ask him if Italian dentists have the same high death rate as, as, uh, as American dentists. <laughs> Suicide rate. So I said, I'm not going to bother about that. So, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. So I said, oh, signore, dottore. You know, and so I asked him, and he said, yes, it's true. I said, a dentist. Why did I? I said, shut up. I'm no. trying to eat my steak. <laughs> I said, well, why do you think? Of course, he had, he had no idea. So, But, of course, the, uh, the nearly on par with dentists are psychiatrists. And that's a little bit. Yes, you're nuts. That's a little bit. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is, since I have a good dentist, I better get there as quickly as I can before something exactly. happens. Exactly. So um, he begins to change to uh, he says that really 
let's be practical. And here, surprisingly Machiavellian, if I can invoke the last author we picked. He said, what does it really come down to? You have the power, okay, you as the ruling class of a government have the power to decide what is human nature going to be. Human nature is not fixed. So if you're a Marxist, you could say it's not a fixed part of human nature to seek for social status to, or, to, or, or to own property or seek property. Or if you're, a, if you're a radical Marxist, even things like marriage and the family are just a convention. So, uh, or, you know, if you're, in, 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 depending on your point of view, you, you, all of these things you could take off the table as being, you know, they're, 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 they're simply things, if you want them, fine, but we can reinvent them. So he said, well, it's going to be a tiny minority. It's going to be one-tenth of one percent of any society that gets to make these decisions. How are they going to decide? Well, he says, well, obviously they're going to decide to put themselves in power and to, and to use this authority. This is where it becomes, by the way, very, not only Machiavellian in the literal sense, this is an insight Machiavelli would have, would have immediately jumped to, but Machiavelli's great late 19th century disciples who said that the nature of the regime is a reflection of the nature of the elite class. And so what Lewis is saying here that the elite class will now re-engineer the human population to, be, to conform to its, its own norms and to be profitable for them. They'll be, you know, and if they want robots, they'll, they'll engineer robots. Yes. He says, short of a world government, short of a world government where you're going to have one nation pitted against another looking for preeminence, but in a world government, what's going to happen? <clears throat> he said, unless we have a world state, that will, that will still be in the power of one nation over another's. And even within the world state or the nation, it will mean, in principle, the power of majorities over minorities mm -hmm. and in the concrete of a government over the people. Gee, sounds like democracy. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> democracy is the right of a, of a, of a presumed 51%. It's usually more like 25% of a presumed 51% to outlaw the existence of the 49%. This has been the pro This is why nobody in the so-called founding fathers of the American Republic described himself as a Democrat. None of them was a Democrat. Uh, Jefferson always said he was a Republican, uses the language of Republicanism. And the real problem on the table for in the early 19th century in America was the, 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 the development <clears throat> of democratic theory. And as, as it begins to develop, John C. Calhoun begins to say, well, you know, it means the tyranny of the majority. Is not, this is what it always means, that you don't have any property rights anymore because 51% can take away your property rights. Or at least a small elite class claiming <coughs> to speak in the name of the 51%. Because there's no such thing as democracy. It never has existed and never will exist. Vernon's managerial society. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, speaking of uh, re-engineering society, uh, you must be familiar with the school of Frankfurt. Yeah. Uh, there is a, a, a father, Professor Guz, in Poland who studied that uh, circle quite uh, in depth. And he said that he's, he's a professor of philosophy. And he said when he got deeper into 
uh, uh, School of Frankfurt, he simply got scared because he found that uh, this is purely nihilistic at the bottom, purely nihilistic mm -hmm. philosophy. And he said, even unlike, he studied German uh, Nazism as well quite, quite a bit. He said, even German Nazism and, and Soviet Communism, in philosophical terms, contain some positive ideas. Yeah. He says, I did not find any positive idea, philosophically speaking, not morally, but yeah, philosophically, yeah. Mm -hmm. in, in, the, in the writings of the School of Frankfurt. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, I mean, it kind of makes sense, because we, if you analyze those, those uh, movements that we, we discussed today, uh, clearly, it points to the uh, atomization of, of disintegration of human human uh, uh, person. Yeah. yeah. The um, something which is a, uh, a, a too philosophical a point, but I, 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 something I've been thinking about lately is how the the Renaissance invention of the individual. This is a concept unknown. You know, in the Middle Ages, it's unknown to antiquity, and it, and it comes into its full flowering in the 18th and 19th century. And the, the, the individual, the individual human being, not a human person, but an individual, he's radically cut off from his fellows. He, 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 the whole point is to be free and independent, not like a, a, a member of a family, but to be free. You can choose to be a member of a family. You can choose to be a member of a society, but you are ultimately free. And so you pursue your own life's course. You, you pursue fulfillment, you know. And this is the, and human, and the purpose of a government is to ensure you the ability to find this fulfillment. But for a government to do this, they decided in the 19th century, they have to destroy monarchy, aristocracy, capitalism, private, eventually private property, sexual distinctions, class distinctions, everything, because I have to wipe all that away so I can become what I really want to be, which is Caitlyn Jenner, you know. But uh, the old version was there's no such thing as an individual. They're human persons. They grow up dependent on their parents. And they don't escape, you know, from the family. They grow up as a member of a broader kinship group. And through that group, and then through their village or their neighborhood or their city and their commonwealth, their church, they find greater and greater fulfillment of their higher and higher needs. And, that is this, and, they, and this is a social growth that is... It, they, they, you can't get this on your own any more than a person can make his own clothes and hunt his own food and make his own wine and write his own symphonies. You can't do it all as an individual. You can't do it all as a, comp as a couple. You can't do it all as a household or even a village. And so the old view, the view of Aristotle and Cicero and Thomas Aquinas, the old view is that our that we, we fulfill ourselves through these widening social spheres that we are part of. We're, mem we're corporate members of these things, as we are corporate members of the church. Whereas the new view is that you just, out, you're, you're, you're like uh, Eddie Robinson in Key Largo, you're out for more. 
Give me more, yeah. That's what I want. I want more. He's got it right. Yeah. And yeah, race and gender are Rico, fluid concepts. Rico, yeah, Rico. Rico. You're right, sir. You're right, sir. You're right, soldier. That's right. So, and, and, and see, and what Lewis is talking about is the, the, the naked individual who's been liberated from everything, liberated from his family, liberated from tradition, liberated from common sense, liberated from what he calls the Tao. And now what's left? Well, what's left is just to pursue... Uh, what he thinks is fulfillment, but usually ends up being pleasure. Carnal. Yeah, carnal pleasure. And, and he says, of course, the world rulers who are emerging, the ruling class who are going to be running these societies. Now, he's saying this in the 40s, and he's thinking partly of the Nazi regime that, that England is at war with, but he's also thinking of communists, but he's also thinking of everyone of all the other regimes. And he says, we may legitimately hope that among the impulses which arise in minds emptied of all rational or spiritual motives, some will be benevolent. I'm very <laughs> doubtful myself whether the benevolent impulses, stripped of that preference and encouragement which the Tao gives, teaches us to give them, and left to their merely natural strength and frequency as psychological events, will have much influence. He says, I'm inclined to think that the conditioners will hate the conditioned. In other words, what he's talking about is a welfare, a gigantic welfare state that is designed to make us happy, but is really run completely in the interest of those who control the welfare state. We are cattle, we're cheap to be fleeced, and our children eaten. You know, by the by, these so-called pastors who are going to be taking care of us. Well, we are flyover people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Hillary. You know, and the whole idea of your um, it takes a village. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for that. I appreciate it. Well, you know, uh, Hillary was right. It takes a village. It doesn't take a global welfare state. Of course it takes a village. Everybody knows if you've grown up in a small town or an urban neighborhood. Yeah. Neighbors are looking out for neighbors. You, your, your aunt lives across the street and she sees you wandering out. And What are you doing? You get yeah. back there. Yes, of course, but that's you know, not social workers, policemen, and public school teachers. <laughs> it used to go on in a certain extent in neighborhoods in big cities. Yes, exactly, yes. No, in new places like New York and sure. Chicago. Sure. You know? And, uh, I don't see it in Rockford, though. Don't see a lot of things in there. I don't think you see it now. You don't see it now, because I grew up with that neighborhood that everybody had. Yeah, and you, especially because you had your aunts, you had your family in the neighborhood at that time when I grew up. Probably those were No, but I mean, it is there now. It's gone. We don't even know some of our neighbors. It's our own fault. You know, you think about we had a neighborhood in school to grow up.
these, these are always temporary expedients because American society is, it's, the, its government institutions are like very powerful acids. And they break this, they break these ties down, these ties of language and culture. And, uh, and you know, if you talk to uh, so-called conservatives uh, who have, in my view, done nothing but harm in the past 50 years, if you talk to conservatives, they say, well, the big thing is to Americanize them. Really? I'm not so sure. Is that really that, such a great idea right now? I mean, let's suppose you come, you, you, you are, you're a Salvador and you move into a Salvadoran neighborhood. You, you, maybe you're not perfect people, but you, and by the way, I'm in favor of keeping them all out 100%. That's a different story. But they move into a neighborhood, they've got strong kinship ties, they, 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 they're bound together by language, culture, tradition, and cuisine. And the next generation grows up eating McDonald's, having multiple affairs with, you know, and having absolutely no sense of loyalty towards anyone. Which is better off? One of the, there was a horrible Harvard study concocted to show that uh, American immigrants were doing well. But unfortunately, what it showed is the more they assimilated, the unhappier their children were. Mm -hmm. And how their IQs dropped. Yeah, 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 yeah. So... So the, 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 to go back to uh, uh, Professor Lewis, you know, what, what he was imagining, he, 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 he couldn't imagine uh, in those days, they, didn't have, they weren't talking about genetic engineering, they were talking about eugenics. They, talk, they were talking about scientific breeding of people who would be, you know, more docile, more hardworking, and useful. Yeah, useful. You talk to businessmen. Ever talk to Sanger, things like that. You ever talk to a businessman yeah. about education? What we need is an educational system that'll turn out people who punch the time card and go to work on time. You know, not that it'll make them better human beings, better citizens, but we'll make them work. Yeah, make them better. Make them better workers for me. Well, the same. The whole eugenics movement was to make people more useful for for the ruling class and less troublesome. Now, uh, of course, my argument has always been, before you start contemplating eugenics, what about you quit, you, you give up your dysgenics policies, your dis of systematically importing the scum of the world and, and giving them welfare incentives to have more and more children. So how about we just, just say no, no more of that? We don't need to do it. We don't need to kill children. We don't need to have abortion. We don't need to have contraception. We don't need to have genetic planning. We just need to quit subsidizing failure. Okay, it's very simple. If you want to pay for it, that's fine. That's your business. But, but we're, all, we're all forced to pay for importing the, the world's losers into our country. In fact, it's, it's, that's what it says on the, on the Statue of Liberty. It was the wretched refuge of your teeming shore. We, we, I don't sign on to the idea of we're bringing in wretched refuge. Well, we're not heading to the golden age of Pericles, are we? Uh, not exactly. Who gave us that statue anyway? Well, no, no, no. Do not blame the French. The French gave us a Statue of Liberty and a, and a, so, a Jewish socialist writer named Emma Lazarus oh, yeah. wrote Lazarus. this disgusting poem, yeah. if you can call it, yeah. and it was put on as graffiti to deface they turned the Statue of Liberty into the Statue of Equality. Oh, come on. Truly, that was the, that was the design, you believe, under at all. It didn't come with that inscription. No, it didn't come with the inscription. Not at all. No, no, it came to celebrate American liberty. Yeah. Right. Right. My dear? 
Oh, John, John. had something. Oh, to yeah. Say. I was just going to say one of the things. This whole immigration issue that seems to be missing and that that nobody seems to be willing to bring up is that in the past, when you looked at immigration, say, oh, from about the 1750s, uh, I'm sorry, 1850s on, going up through about the 1920s, up until the First World War, um, what was always seen, the the emphasis of immigration was what is needed by industry, what is yeah. needed uh, by America, what is needed here, as opposed to what are the needs of the wretched refuse of the yeah. world, and how do we satisfy that, and how do we coddle that? No, it's what can we use, what can they bring to us, and then we will let those people in as we need them, much and, uh, and not just say, Come on in. Yeah. Yeah. Come on down. Yeah. <laughs> Let's fly. For the quotas based on you know perceived assimilation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The quotas. Uh, the quotas adopted in 1921-22 uh, <coughs> were based on the percentage of people in America at the time. There were various things that had gone on. For example, in the 1860s. They, uh, Lincoln recruited Irish and German and without necessarily explaining to them that when they got here they were going to have to fight for the Union. And hence, hence there were draft riots, etc. Uh, as they were forced into the army and sla slaughtered mercilessly. Uh, the uh, Pius IX wrote an epistle to the Irish bishops instructing them to discourage uh, Irish immigration yeah, in, for this immoral war. Mm -hmm. okay. Wow! Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, to 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 but to go to go back to Lewis because we got, we we do have to finish up and then go go out to dinner. So he sees that genetic planning, you know, that is gen eugenics without any specific science. That 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 what you have it, you're going to have a tiny elite that is going to try to reprogram and re restructure the human race through something like behavioral psychology, which was very in at the time. John B. Watson had started his career like 10, 15 years earlier, and, and of course would be taken over by B.F. Skinner. And uh, that, that this program, this program combined you know, behavioral training with, uh, with genetic selection would produce a, 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 a race of human beings that were unlike any other. Mm. And, and that, 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 that the degeneration that seized power over this would seize power over the future of mankind. Um, fortunately, I, I, I believe that that's not possible under the terms he understood it. It's barely possible with the kind of genetic planning we have today because there's so much variation yeah. in the human gene code yeah. that, they're co that there's constantly going to be a kickback, and the more you overplan these things, the more there'll be revolution. You know, eight years of Barack Obama, and you get Donald Trump. Okay, I mean, these, there, is a, there, is, there is a pendulum. But Lewis is certainly right about the ambition that these people had to have a, a, have a servile population, and it's still, it's still exactly what they want. It's still exactly what they're counting on. And, and that they have turned. He's complaining about literary textbooks teaching aesthetic subjectivity. <laughs> 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 you, you, you know, those, those, those textbooks. 
compared to what children are getting today routinely in every course, there is no objective truth taught. Yes. Not oh, even in mathematics. They have in mathematics. First of all, the, the problem will be, well, uh, Johnny was discriminated against for 20 years because he was a homosexual Negro. And how, what sort of what sort of payback should he be given? <laughs> <laughs> Is there a formula? I'm only slightly exaggerating. Well, that's right. A number of years, times. And then and then they have the way they answer. You know, they say, well. What's, uh, you have 20 apples and you have to divide them among 96 people. Well, what they see is, well, okay, 20, nine, 20, or 22 apples, 96 people. Well, 22 is close to 20, 96 is close to 100, 2 goes into 10, how many times? Well, you got a calculator, you can figure that out. Okay, so it's 5, right? And 5 plus or minus one or two. No, 76 people go to gulag. <laughs> and, and that's the answer. More, more or less about five. Correct. There's a name for this. I forget what the name is. But where, how Common Core. So, I think... age-old story. This has always been the history of man. It is the history more. of man, Mark, except that until, say, the past 200 years, the, 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 the elite classes in civilized countries aimed at, they were first of all part of their societies, and they aimed at producing truth and beauty. I mean, there were plenty of corrupt politicians in 5th century Athens, or Cicero's England, or Cicero's Rome, or Sam Johnson's England, but what, or, or, or the Florence out of the Medici. But what they produced, and, and the, the quality of life they produced, and the enduring artifacts they left, is vastly different from what we're doing. They were benevolent at one time, now they're malevolent because they're atheists. Yeah. Well, they're also worthless. They're, yeah, so we, we, have, we, have the, we have the lowest class. Yes, my dear. I was just going to say, when you have an aristocracy who is committed to preserving itself, you have at least a certain genetic pool they're brought up to say certain things are beautiful, certain things are worth spending money on, and now we just have the lowest level grappling for what it wants. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We have a country where Hillary Clinton is exactly. actually a potential president. I mean, this is unbelievable. It is unbelievable. With her, with her, with her corrupt millionaire friends. We're not talking about her ankles. <laughs> well, just a case in point, I came across a, uh, a picture of, uh, in World War II era of a, a graduating class of Yale that had all gone into the Naval Service. Huge class of graduating naval uh, Yale seniors going into the Navy. You couldn't imagine that today. No, aristocracy in World War One. Yeah, you couldn't imagine that that today. By the way, in the fifties no. they went into you the hired, CIA. Uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> you hired the lower classes to go and fight your war. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.